0: Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, these are the words of God. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And in a slight modification to this sentiment, Doug Wilson, a pastor that I uh, highly respect, said that the unexamined holiday is not worth celebrating. The unexamined holiday is not worth celebrating. I agree with both of these ideas, uh, which is why I prefer, as an individual, I prefer to examine life and its traditions constantly. I like to figure out what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it. For me... um, Things have to make sense before I can be okay in participating in them. So, little confession moment. I actually don't like rules unless they make sense. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't care for rules. They need to make sense. And quite honestly, a lot of rules don't make sense to me. So, I press and I challenge and I do that. Uh, some people view this as doubt and some more than doubt, maybe even disobedience or, or rebellion. But I assure you, uh, in... I assure you, in my heart, that's it, not what it is at all. Uh, the examination process that I go through um, is actually what I consider a precursor to a more concrete or a more established faith. Believing what I believe and having reasons for it. Faith, according to the Bible, it has both assurance and evidence. You can look it up for yourself. Hebrews eleven one. It has assurance and it has evidence. Um, examinations like what we're doing in this advent series help us to uh, gain the assurance help us to gain the evidence that we need to celebrate this season without um, without compromise right It, it allows us to celebrate this season the way I think it's intended to be celebrated for the right reasons and not for the wrong reasons many of us celebrate Christmas listen Many of us celebrate Christmas for the wrong reasons, and we just don't even know it. We're just going, Mama told me, and Grandma said, and this is the way I've always done it, and that doesn't mean we're right. A lot of times, we're just absolutely wrong. So I want to have a a genuine faith in whatever we're doing. Dallas Willard, he's another pastor He's passed away, but another pastor that I deeply respect, he said this. He said, the idea of a leap of faith is ridiculous. I've taught on this concept many times. He said, faith leaps, scare quotes, right? Faith leaps on the basis of knowledge. In other words, faith has evidence, faith has substance, and it moves accordingly. Uh, Abraham, in faith, Willard said, went out not knowing where he was going, but knowing that God was with him. Now, I, I would modify Dallas Willard's statement just ever so slightly to say that Abraham, in faith, went out knowing where he was going. Uh, uh, didn't know where he was going, but he knew that he was going somewhere. And why did he know that he was going somewhere? Because God told him he was going somewhere. God said, follow me. God said, come, I want you to go to this particular place. This is assurance and evidence. As a matter of fact, I think we can all make the case that, uh, that any and every faith we deal with is predicated on the word of God first in some way. Okay, So God speaks and we respond. This is, this is the case all around, guys. So, contrary to popular belief, uh, faith also is not blind. Faith is not blind. Uh, it, is, it, it may not always see, but there is a massive difference between being blind and not seeing. Do you guys know that there's a difference there? Like, I cannot see what's be behind a mountain, but it doesn't mean I'm blind. I can still see the mountain. Being blind says I can't see it either way. So there's a massive difference between being blind and not seeing. And so examining our traditions is actually a way to see better. Uh, We need to know what we believe, and we need to know the reasons why we believe those things. All of this is an attempt to strengthen our faith. That's what I hope we're all uh, aiming at or wanting to do. And so this series on Advent is all about examining the lines that we've drawn, that is, tradition, our opinions on things, and then comparing that with the lines that God has established and doing away with our junk, right? passing that away. We do all of this so that we can celebrate a season uh, truly, as Doug Wilson said, for the right reasons. Uh, we want to participate in something for, for right reasons. So last week, we took a first step in all of this, and we came away with some significant observations of who Jesus was I suppose the most crucial observation of Jesus' identity was that he was the seed of Abraham, or at least that was our takeaway from last week. As God's chosen seed, Abraham, or uh, Jesus, meant to and did bring peace to the entire world. He's the peace bringer. He's the one who came to do this whole thing. Uh, And yet, it is not a complete picture to, to... see the blessing of Jesus, the blessing of the seed of Abraham, as salvation from sin alone. It definitely contains that. There's a lot that I'm going to cover today, and so I'm trying my best to kind of govern myself, fitting for a political message, but governing myself because there is a lot that is in this, and I hope that I give you the time to actually process it. So, Uh, Sin, salvation from sin is contained in the salvation story, but it has to be far more than that. This is why, as we'll see today, there has always been a political element to Advent. There has always been a political element to Advent, although, although it's often misunderstood. Last week I showed you that even Mary believed that her baby boy had come to overthrow rulers and to topple thrones. God's story does include political peace. The first century believers weren't completely wrong in this. Those who were anticipating the consolation of Israel weren't completely wrong in this. They may have missed the the point in many ways, but they weren't completely wrong. Uh, And the the truth is that peace and that political aspect is still uh, needed today. It's still something that we have to be aware of. So uh, we do have a lot to cover. So here's, here's a brief outline. We're following Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 as the outline. And then after I get through the outline, we'll dive into each piece. The first part of our outline is, what is the phrase, unto us a child is born all about? You'll see these headings on the screen. What is the phrase, unto us a child is born all about? We're going we're to look at that. Number two, what does it mean that the government will rest upon his shoulders? What government will rest upon Jesus' shoulders, or what governments will rest upon Jesus' shoulders? Number three, and this is a little bit of a spoiler for that previous question, what about Romans 13? If God establishes all existing governments and they rest on his shoulders, how should this affect our faith as American Christians? And so I'm going to pick a little bit today. Uh, on your patriotism and mine as well number four when did no end to the increase of his government or peace begin spoiler alert again it didn't begin yesterday (laughs) it began quite some time ago but look at that idea there is no end to the increase of Jesus's government or of his peace number five what about the name of Jesus what about his name wonderful counselor mighty God eternal father prince of peace What do what do all those names mean? Well, they have political significance, trust me. Number six, what does it mean to sit on the throne of David uh, and to be over his kingdom? What does all that look like? We're gonna talk about that. Number seven, how does the zeal of the Lord uh, of hosts accomplish anything or accomplish God's objectives? What is zeal in this context? We'll be answering that question. Then finally, As is fitting for Christmas time, we'll wrap it up in a nice little bow in the conclusion. So number one, what is the phrase, unto us a child is born, all about? I think we often overlook um, that democratic forms of governance were not the norm throughout human history. Can I get an amen? Amen. That wasn't the norm, although that's all we've known. Representative republic, uh, democratic ideals, that's all we've known. And so we tend to run this, uh, this ship aground with the idea that that's all there ever was. We do the same thing with our political bents. Uh, we hold to a particular political persuasion, and then we get to election time and the majority votes opposite, and we're shocked. We're like, how can people think different than me? Because people don't think like you, <laughs> right? That, that's a reality of life. I don't know why we miss this, but we're always, we always seem to be shocked about this, right? And, and then we just decry that it, that's not what really happened, something nefarious took place. Maybe, but, but listen, it's, it's not always the case that people think like you. So democracies and these kinds of governance, they weren't the norm. Instead, monarchies are actually what we find most often. For people to hear in light of that, for people to hear that a child would be born to right the wrongs of a society, uh, for us is incredible. Like Sam's going to come along and right the wrongs of our world. I'm like, she can't even make her bed well. Anyway, sorry Sam, I'm messing with you, (laughs) teasing with you. But the idea is that we think it's incredible. To others, it's not strange or outlandish. She's smiling, so don't you think I embarrassed my daughter. Come on. Anyway, so to, to others, to Israel, this wasn't so outlandish. It wasn't so strange. Uh, and it's even something of a relief if the father, that would be the previous king, if the father was a good king. That's what they wanted is a lineage of people who were going to do what was right. Now, that didn't always happen because people have a will, right? Um, So, for example, Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 22 or 2 Chronicles 34, both of those in verses 1 and 2, uh, Josiah was king over Israel at the ripe old age of eight. Sam's age. This is perfect. I like this idea. Uh, He was one of... Israel's most godly kings. He was lauded as such. Listen to what 2 Kings 22 2 says. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. Sounds like a pretty good king, right? To Israel, God was working for justice through a promise that he had made to David. There was always going to be someone to sit on the throne. And King Josiah was simply a part of that promise. Uh, Another fun fact, though, is that in this patriarchal system, the father's name extended well beyond his own life, and none of this is bad or good, it's just the reality of what was happening. If the father were a key figure, his name would expand um, in a very unique way, it would expand multiple generations ahead. So for example, we just read that Josiah uh, was the son of David. You know what the problem is? Josiah wasn't the son of David, right? Josiah's father was a a man by the name of Ammon. But what what are we getting at here? Well, Josiah was a descendant of David, and David was promised to always have one upon the throne, which means Josiah was the son of David, just as Jesus is considered that. Uh, it, It just continues on, but this is how this patriarchal world worked. Another example of this would be Jacob and Esau, all of us know the story of Jacob and Esau. When the names of Jacob and Esau are referenced in Malachi and Romans, they actually refer to the people groups and not necessarily the individual. Uh, the individuals were long dead and gone when these prophecies or these truths were were spoken. Uh, their service had been fulfilled, and so God was actually honoring the fathers who had um, who had. Uh, birthed all of these people I think it's worth noting in the Jacob and Esau story that Hebrews 11 actually counts both Jacob and Esau as blessed it's amazing as people of faith what was the difference between Jacob and Esau we get a lot of confusion on Jacob I loved and Esau I hated what was the difference it was a call to service Jacob was the one through whom the line would come and Esau was not right but Hebrews talks of Esau in a favorable light. It's a pretty powerful idea. So you can check that out on your own. Another, uh, another example of this would be Jesus when he said he would make uh, for Abraham children from rocks. This was actually just a warning to Pharisees. So it would be pretty awesome to be able to make children out of rocks. I'd have a lot more kids, I can tell you that, right? So, but, but, so it was a warning to Pharisees because the, uh, because the people had traced their lineage back to Abraham, he was, he was this father of theirs. My point in all of this is that um, the son in view in Isaiah 9, this beautiful Advent message, this Christmas message, the son in view of Isaiah 9 is a son of David, like Josiah before, but better. Okay? And yet the eternal promise of God still lasted. It was to give this political promise to God's people. Uh, Jeremiah thirty three seventeen 17 says, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. David will never lack one to sit on that throne. So first, we have to be clear, uh, political promises are found in Isaiah 9. That's what it's all about. Which then leads us to question number two. Okay, so we have a political promise. Question number two, what does it mean that the government will rest upon his shoulders And again, that sub-question is, what government are we talking about or ultimately what governments? Well, it's evident based on the very last passage I read to you in Jeremiah that the Messiah would have a government to bear in Israel. How many of you know that Jesus is bearing the government of Israel? He still is to this day. Yes? Okay. So Jesus is the Messiah to the Jews. He didn't start a new religion, even though people can't seem to get that. Um, He is the eternal fulfillment of the Davidic promise, but there is far more to this. Every government, ultimately, is to rest on Jesus' shoulders. That is, if they are established, every government is to rest on Jesus' shoulders. Otherwise, they will fall. That's the promise. You will rest on Jesus' shoulders, or you will bow your knee. I love that promise. That sounds cool. I like warrior King Jesus, right? Matthew 28, 18 says this. It says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Do you see this, the expanse of that authority? All. <laughs> Everywhere. It doesn't matter. Heaven and on earth. Paul gives us the scope of this duration uh, for Christ's rule when he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 24-26. Then comes the end, and he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. To the Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. So there is a coming to an end of these human institutions. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So what's the duration of things resting on Jesus' shoulder? Until he kicks everybody's butt. That sounds like an awesome biblical message there, right? So Jesus may have come as a fulfillment of a promise to the Jewish people, but he also came as a blessing to the entire world. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, and then verse 14. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Now there's a significance to the target, or the object of all the people there. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Uh, This message is delivered to Jews, and it's referring to all the people in the city of David. It's all the people in God's chosen people's land. Okay? But... It's amazing how it expands after that. Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men, okay, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Well, how do we know? How do we know whether we're pleasing to God? What's the trigger inside of all this? The Great Commission actually answers the question for us. One of the things that I love doing most of all with Bible study is connecting the dots of all of these crazy passages. This is all one giant story, and all of these pieces connect together. And when we see the connections, and sometimes for the first time, it makes us jump up and down. We go, that makes sense, right? Because why is that so important? Evidence and substance to our faith. We need to make sense of all of this. Otherwise, we're just kind of winging it, and that's not very good for us, right? So the Great Commission says this, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. This is from Mark 16, 15 and 16. Uh, preach the gospel to all creation. You should be preaching to your puppy dog. I'm teasing you, but you, you should preach to all creation. That's what that heading is referring to. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. Who is pleasing to God? He who believes, he who has been baptized, that's the one who is pleased and shall be saved because what did God come to do? He came to bring peace among men with whom he is pleased. It's very clear what the scriptures tell us. So go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But there's a negative to this. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. What is disbelieved? It means rejected, right? He who has rejected Jesus, it doesn't mean that in the rejection, he is then condemned. This actually would contradict Scripture. Those who reject Jesus remain condemned. John 3, 17 tells us we stand condemned already because there is sin in our lives, okay? So what happens? You have an option in this life. You can believe in King Jesus and be saved, or you can reject it and stay in your condemnation. That's a powerful truth, and that's a hard thing for all of us to hear in our world. So he says, but he who disbelieves shall be condemned. So all government, this is what we're seeing in all of this, all government, all of mankind is to rest upon Jesus' shoulders. But there's more to government, though, than kings and dignitaries. When we look to the whole of Scripture, what we see is that there are basically three forms of government. If you're a note taker, you're going to want to write these down. Three forms of government. The first is the civil government. We find it in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. The second is the government of the family. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. And then finally, we have the government of the church, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. The church is tasked with governing word and sacrament. Uh, they're also in, uh, it's also included that the church deals with spiritual and moral discipline. That's the responsibility of the church. The family is responsible for health, education, and welfare. And this is why it's so tricky what's going on with COVID, what's going on with vaccines, what's going on inside of our world. The family is responsible for the governance of those things. You do know that there is no king to walk this planet that can prevent you from catching a cold, right? You also know your mama can't do it either. No matter how much vitamin she sees, she jams down your throat, right? It doesn't, it's never going to just prevent those things. But the responsibility still resides with the family, according to God's word. So we have a responsibility for health, for education and welfare. And then the civil government has the responsibility for justice and protection. How do we know that for sure? Well, Romans 13 tells us that the civil government bears a sword and their purpose is to, um, is to uplift good, to praise good, and to correct, discipline, crush evil. That's ex- expressly stated, guys. That is the responsibility of the civil government. Now, what is also important to remember in this is that these are concentric circles. And so, in some ways, they overlap, I'm grateful for police officers, Phil. I'm grateful for police officers because if I can't stop something in my own home, I need help. Phil told me he's not helping me, but it's okay. It's just, he just, he just, he's just being moody. I don't know what's happening right now. <laughs> anyway, the, the idea here is that those circles overlap sometimes. And I'm grateful for where they overlap. But just because something overlaps doesn't mean we... Um, abandon responsibility. I hope you know that. So it's not always clear where those lines are, but I think it's worth our study. So I'd need sermon after sermon after sermon to even scratch the surface of that subject. But here's what I want you to know. Each form of government, and those are forms of government. So therefore, those are governments. I know that I sound like a broken record. Those are governments, and they are carried on the shoulders of King Jesus. He shoulders the weight of these governments. The reason this matters is because Advent is fundamentally political. It is. It's political. People weren't missing it when they saw all this. Jesus came to be king, not just of some castle far removed in the great by and by. He's not king over a select group of people in competition with other kingdoms. He came to be king over our families. Can I get an amen? He came to be king over our churches. Can I get an amen? He came to be king over our state house. Can I get an amen? And here's a statement that'll uh, be fun for the principalities and powers of this age. Jesus is king whether you like it or not. It's fun, right? Jesus is king whether Caesar likes it or not. Jesus is king whether you like it or not. I just happen to like it. (laughs) Me and Fay are good. (laughs) We like this idea, right? So we've got it. What governments rest on Jesus' shoulders? All of them. All of them. Jesus is bearing the weight. Well, what about Romans 13 then? If God establishes all existing governments, and He does, and they rest on His shoulders, and they do, how should this affect our faith? as American Christians. Well, in case you don't know it, let me restate Romans 13.1 for you. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. No authority? Dang skippy. No authority except from God. Now listen, and those which exist are established by God. Here's a fun, logical syllogism for you. Okay. Does America exist? Are all existing governments established by God? Was America established by God? Yes. Yes. If all existing governments are established by God and America exists... Then America was established by God and therefore must submit. That's the challenge inside of all of this. Keep that syllogism in mind as we go forward. The first thing that we have to do is embrace these two truths. God establishes all governments and they rest upon his shoulders. If and when this is truly believed by us, forget the kings, forget the presidents, forget the governors, forget all those people. If this is truly believed by us, we will have great peace. Here's the problem. We don't have great peace because we don't believe one or both of those. We've somehow lulled ourselves into believing we're responsible for all the weight of all governments, and especially in America. You're not, and neither am I. I'm going to tease you a little bit and poke at you a little bit, and so you might not like me, but what else is new anyway? Okay, so please please know this. We are either not believing one or both of this. Um, As with humanity at large, though, God gives people who run our governments a will of their own, doesn't he? And guess what happens? Because they are composed of individuals, governments go astray, don't they? If you can't say, if you can't say yes to that, you're not paying attention, right? right? So they, they go astray. Israel went astray, mind you, and they were God's chosen people. But this doesn't mean that God is any less in control, That's where we keep making the mistake. Well, the police officer did something that was not according to code or ethics. Therefore, I disregard all police officers? That's absurd, church. The the president, the government, the world that we live in is upside down. Therefore, God didn't establish them and you just get to do what you want? Welcome to the time of judges where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. You want to know where that's most evident? The American church. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And when they don't like what you say, they walk. That's the American church. Give me a break. What we do is when we don't like leadership, we imagine it doesn't exist or we don't have to submit. Tough nookies, that's what I say to my girls all the time. Tough nookies, there's still something that is there, okay? Just because, just because these things happen doesn't mean God is any less in control. It only means that sin is still running rampant in our world. Just because God doesn't prevent dissent doesn't in any way imply that it is too much for him to handle. God is not wringing his hands wondering what will happen to little old America, Right? He's not. He's in control, guys. It surely doesn't mean that he's no longer good. Can I get an amen? amen? Come on. God is still good, church. So again, Isaiah said, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government, all of them, will rest On his shoulders. As American Christians, we have to remember these truths. God establishes all authority. They rest on his shoulders. Although our representative republic allows us to cast a vote, that's a wonderful thing. You should use your right. God is still in control even of that. How does that work, Nathan? How does that work? It's a process that is not unlike the casting of lots in the Old and New Testament. Did you know that? God used casting of lots; It wasn't just a gamble. It wasn't a New Testament and Old Testament equivalent of rolling dice. It was something God used. And so, does God use our votes? Sure, he uses our votes. Is God going to bring about his ultimate end? Absolutely. Gulp. So, so what you mean, Nathan, is that things that are happening now might be happening on purpose? Yeah. It's amazing. But here's why we can't swallow that. Because we don't believe God is in control and we don't believe all governments rest on his shoulders. We believe only the good ones do. When everything's gone smooth, God is in control. <laughs> nope. Nope, 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 nope. Guys, Israel was thrown into captivity and in Babylon. You know what God told them to do in their disobedience and in their captivity? He said, park it, marry, have kids. Make houses, you're going to be a while. I don't know where we're at as Americans, but maybe we're there. Nonetheless, God is in control, isn't he? Number four, we, uh, when did no end to the increase of God's government or peace begin? I love this because this is just, it's a nose puncher here. It's a little out of order with Isaiah 6 or Isaiah 9, but it's in line with what we're talking about. Uh, If we really understand this, it can transform our political view as Americans forever. It doesn't make us pacifists. It doesn't make us sit by and take it. It makes us trusting God. I'll give this my best shot, though. Here we go. 2,000 years ago, church, 2,000 years ago, according to the scripture, when our resurrected king sat on his throne and revealed that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him, His kingdom, his rule, his government was on the increase, and it hasn't stopped since. It didn't change when Jimmy Carter was president. It didn't change when George Bush was president. It won't change no matter who's president now. What, Nathan? No. I want to be worked up. Well, then be worked up. Get worked up. That's fine. But I'm just telling you, God's not changed. His increase has never stopped. Even when we think things look dark, the kingdom is not decreasing. The disciples thought this, didn't they? Right? Jesus was increasing even while he was hanging on a cross, even while the sky literally turned black, church. Jesus is going, still in control. (laughs) Why Why don't we get this? We miss it all the time. Still in control. This guy, right? I win. Okay, So we've got to make sure we understand this. It didn't look promising then. It's not going to look promising now. But you can pick a dark spot in human history all you want, and I will be able to point to you that the kingdom of God didn't stop increasing in that moment. Which brings us to present-day America. Who is our hope in, church? I'm going to let you respond because I need you to say it. Who's our hope in? Jesus. He's established our government, right? If it exists, and it exists, our government is resting upon his shoulders, right? All of them do, right? Okay, so is God's government still increasing? No, we got the wrong guy in office. I just need you to hear what you effectively say. God can't be increasing because the wrong guy got there. Even when life looks bleak, church, God is still increasing. He's still on the throne. So, what the heck are we worried about? I'll tell you what we're worried about saving ourselves. And we can't do it. We cannot do it. We try. We try constantly. We are not going to save ourselves. I'm not saying that dark times won't come. I'm not saying that captivity is not possible. I'm not saying that freedoms won't be taken away. I'm only trying to tell you that our attention needs to get back to Jesus and not to a political leader. Israel was bitten by serpents in the wilderness. They were commanded to look to God as a saving uh, mechanism, right? We are facing trial. We are called to look to God. This is what it means to walk by faith. God said what he said about governments. God said what he said about his governance over all things. So what are we going to believe? Are we going to believe God or are we going to believe our circumstances? Nathan, you're making this too simple. It's too flat. No, you don't like flat, and it is flat. That's the problem. It is this flat. We trust God or we don't trust God. In ancient Israel, uh, God told the people to look to him, but instead, what did they do? They demanded a king, didn't they? How'd that turn out for them? It's exactly what I'm afraid we're doing in our current day. The political component of Advent is true true hope when rightly understood and believed. It is true hope. If it's wrongly understood, we're going to reject it. It's just going to be something we add to our daily lives. It's just, I'm an American, plus I have a little Jesus on the side, but we will not find any peace in this. We will not find any peace in this. Number five, what about God's name? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. What does all of that mean? Well, let's break it down. First, Wonderful Counselor. Isaiah 28, 29. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. Same Isaiah spoke this passage. We have a really short-sighted view of counselor or a counselor in modern, uh, in modern day Uh, America. We picture a therapist or a guidance counselor, don't we? A counselor. Sit on my couch and I'll psychoanalyze you and everything will be good. And I'm not dogging that to some degree, right? We picture that. That's all we're doing. But this is not the language the Bible uses. The counselor language the Bible uses is actually legal in nature, right? This life is actually a courtroom drama playing out. Did you know that? What a fun courtroom. We got God as the judge. We got the accuser as the accuser, right? We have Jesus as our defense attorney. We have the Spirit of God residing in us to give us what we need when we take the stand, when we have to say something in our defense, which most likely will sound something like this. You're guilty, yes I am, but Jesus, (laughs) right? That's our defense. And so we have this whole courtroom drama that's playing out in front of God as the judge. But Jesus comes in not just as our defense, but in the right sense. He is our legal counsel. That's what it's called, legal counsel. As such, he provides counsel that is both wise and miraculous, That name, Wonderful Counselor, Wonderful, is the term in Hebrew for miracle. The role of judge and counselor were the responsibility of Israel's kings. So this first title, Wonderful Counselor, is clearly political. The second title, Mighty God, Deuteronomy 10.17 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty one, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe impartiality was always required of a good king. Um, Faithfulness and loving kindness were as well, both of which are connected with God as mighty God. Uh, Nehemiah 9.32, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty one, uh, and the awesome God who keeps covenants and loving kindness. Or Isaiah 10.21, A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. He is who he is. Third, everlasting or eternal father. It's complicated to wrap our minds around because we believe in a Trinitarian God. So uh, as many scholars would say, this, this is three whos, Father, Son, and Spirit, in one what, which is God. And so the Son and the Father are one in that sense, right? Right? John 10, 30. Isaiah 63, 16 says, For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. In other words, too much time has passed. We're far removed from that. But what we know is that you're still our father. Uh, Isaiah 64, verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are potter. But look at the positive side of the potter and the clay. And all of us are the work of your hand. You're molding us. You're shaping us. It's your business, Lord. These titles that Jesus receives here are the titles of a king. They're the title of a political leader. And so Jesus is all of this because he is governing everything. Last one is Prince of Peace. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Now look at this. Verse 12. "'Lord, you will establish peace for us since you have also performed for us all your works.'" Isaiah 54.10, for the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken. So it is to establish peace that Jesus came. It is a covenant of peace that he came with. Isaiah 66.12, for thus says the Lord, behold, I extend peace to her, Israel, like a river and the glory of all the nations like an overflowing stream. Now let's... Let's move on to point number six, but first let me say this. Um, All of these are related to political peace for God's people, and so we are that people, and we are going to experience um, joyful, resounding, or uh, eternal peace if we will trust in Jesus. Number six, what does it mean to sit on the throne of David and to be over his kingdom? I'll be quick with this. To sit on the throne of David was to fulfill a covenantal promise, and uh, to, t- yeah, to sit on the throne of David was to fulfill a covenantal promise, and to be over his kingdom was about the duration. It was to last forever. All of God's uh, kings were to uh, continue this enduring line. Uh, Isaiah sixteen five. A throne will even be established in loving kindness, and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness, In the tent of David, moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. How many of you want a leader that sounds like that? Jesus is that leader. Okay, number seven. How does the zeal of the Lord of hosts accomplish all of this? Well, the word this refers to everything that we've just read, right? So what does that mean? God is the one who will bring about the child. He did. He begat his only son. He will establish and set governments on Jesus' shoulders. He did, Matthew 28, 18, and Romans 13. God will establish the Messiah's name, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. God always has and will have a never-ending increase, 1 Corinthians 3, 7, Matthew 13, 31, and 32. And God uh, has and will always fulfill every promise he makes. But it says in the scripture that he does it through zeal. What does the word zeal mean here? It actually means jealousy. God is doing everything that he's doing because of his jealousy. What is he jealous for? Two really important things that you need to remember. He is zealous, he is jealous uh, for his image bearers. He's jealous for you. He's jealous for your heart. He's jealous for your affections, your attention, your obedience. He's jealous for you. He's also jealous for another thing, and that is he is jealous for righteousness. He is jealous jealous to see justice and righteousness uh, permeate his world. And he's going to stop at nothing for these things to happen. That's an amazing idea. You see, all of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 communicate the politics of the Bible, the politics of Advent, the politics of Christmas They're not the nonsense of our world today. They're something far greater. They're an enduring politic. They're an enduring governance. So the politics of Advent are different from what we see. God is not concerned with our view of setting things to rights. He's not even concerned that much with our opinions of freedom. This God-ordained peace, uh, this this God-ordained peace that we're supposed to walk in, Uh, is what some people anticipated. But it's what many people uh, misread. It's what some expect rightly today. But I'm afraid as Americans, many of us have misread it as well. We're waiting for Jesus to come out of the clouds and smite our enemies or something. Right? He's already on the throne. He's not intimidated by the principalities and powers of this world. I just hope we actually know and believe that. Advent, when understood correctly, should afford us peace in this world, right here and right now. It should. It should show us that God has never abdicated his throne. He's not gotten off for one second. Did you know that? Not for one second. It should show us that although life grows dark from time to time, and it will, and who knows, we might be on the verge of darkness. I don't. I'm not a fortune teller. I'm not a prophet in certain ways. I, I don't get that, right? Maybe in declaring the truth of God's word, sure, but nothing else. I don't know what the future holds. Anybody who tells you that, you should test it according to the word of God. They're probably selling something. They're probably on TBN selling something, quite literally. Anyway, sorry. Shot over the bow, anyway. Anyway. Right? Jesus' kingdom is increasing, church. The politics of Advent shouldn't be a thing we shy away from. It should actually be a subject of our conversations. So much so that it actually drowns out the foolish talk of modern politics. So, if you go to Christmas this year, because you're not afraid of COVID or something, right? If you go to Christmas this year, somebody says, don't talk about politics or religion. Tell them you're going to screw up their world in one fell conversation, right? Right? But don't start talking about politics as you know it. Please tell the people that you sit across the table from, no matter who is on the throne of America, Jesus is winning. Jesus is increasing. King of kings and Lord of lords, church. And he hasn't changed. Right? Right? He doesn't care if the state is red or blue or purple or green. He really doesn't, right? Still in control. You see, messages like this are challenging, and they're challenging for me because I'm not apolitical. (laughs) They're challenging for me because politics irritates me, and I want to punch people in the face a lot right? In Jesus' name, of course, right? right. In Jesus' name. <laughs> this, this is important, Matt. Anyway, in Jesus' name, right? Five-fold ministry, right? That's it. Five-fold ministry. Anyway, I'm not apolitical. I, these, things, these things get under my skin, but I'm tired of year after year trying to find my peace in a person, right? Right? in an election in a this or in a that. I'm just, just tired of it. I'm also tired of the church arguing and picking fights with each other when the truth is, um, ain't none of us have a perfect view on all of this. Ain't none of us is the Claremont County version of that. Anyway, right? Yeehaw. anyway, okay. So the idea though is that we have got to start looking to the only thing that matters. Why would we repeat the problem of Israel? Look to a king, he'll save us. Why why would we do that? Why would we repeat that process? Yet we're doing it. We do it all the time. We we not only repeat this process, we pick fights with everybody who doesn't get on board with our repeating of this process. Yay. (laughs) Okay, I'm just confessing how much I'm awful. Anyway, the, the point though is that we've got to get back to looking at Jesus. We've got to get back to trusting him. Do we have opportunities to vote and try to change things? Should we be active inside of our world? Absolutely, we should. We should never, though, lose sight. If we lose, if we come away short, uh, short, you know, short, shorted in our politics, we should never conclude that Jesus left the throne. And we sure shouldn't present that to the rest of the world where they look at us and go, you guys are just as hopeless as we are. I thought you said you believed in a savior. We just look like a train wreck. Amen? Can I get an amen? So Christmas, Advent, it actually has a lot to do with politics. It just has to do with right politics, not our politics. Jesus is king, amen? Amen. Jesus is on the throne, amen? Jesus established our government, amen? It's resting on his shoulders, amen? He's not stopped increasing, amen? So what are we worried about?